You know, we can learn a lot about human nature by watching babies. Did you know that? You see, babies early on, and I'm not commenting on, on the pastors here. So, babies early on realize that when they have a need, they, they automatically cry. And then something magical happens. Adults show up. And they begin to realize that when they cry, adults show up. And when they cry, there are some things that happen in adults that means they get what they want, or quicker, want quicker so they don't cry. I'm not saying they understand all of this in their mind and thinking, well, if I cry, I'll get an adult. But innately, they know. So sometimes it is just by crying they get an adult. Sometimes it is showing off for attention. They realize when they do certain things, they get all oh, and fawning over them. They hey, this is pretty cool. So what do they do again? They do the same thing again to get fawning over them. Sometimes they're like the, the gulls in Finding Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. They learn that, right? It's mine. And all of that expresses to us human nature. Our job as parents is to make sure that those things don't grow into socially dangerous and spiritually dangerous characteristics in their life. Well, there's another thing that we can learn from, from our children as well as we watch them, as they learn to do something new, and what do they say? I do it. I do it. Maybe it's not the right time for them to do it, but what do they know? They know they can do it, so what do they say? I do it. I do it. And so even in there, they're showing us that once they learn to do something, they can immediately grow self-sufficient on their ability to do it. Don't know all the repercussions of that, but all of that reveals to us human nature and sinful tendencies that we as adults know we can do the same thing. We may not be so bold as to walk around and say, mine, 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 but we can still live in ways that our flesh demands that we do. And one of those ways is to say, I do it. I can do this. I can take care of this. That, I'm gifted in that way. I have that ability. And there's a tension, as always in the Christian life, is there not? There's a tension between doing all things to the glory of God and how subtly we move to do all things to the glory of me. And that's a constant challenge in the Christian life. Am I going to live for the glory of God or am I going to live to my glory? And that manifests itself in all different ways, but one of the ways it manifests itself keenly, and this is something that happens in our society and in our church today in subtle ways more than it's happened in the past, our own ability, our own self-sufficiency, our own self-reliance. I mean, after all, we have the internet. You can be an expert on anything. Four clicks, expert diploma. And that can tend to lead to a self-reliance that we don't need anyone else, which is not what the scripture says about body life, but mainly that we don't need the one. We don't need the one who's ordering our steps, who's sovereign over our universe, who's sovereign over our decisions. And there is a subtle shift that can happen in us as children of God where we do things for our own glory before we even realize we're doing it. Isaiah is intent on exposing that for us this morning. 
He was intent on exposing that for Jerusalem, and he's intent by the power of the Spirit to expose that in us today and to point us to the one who we should have all of our sufficiency in, to the one who has created us and recreated us, to the one who has redeemed us and set us off in life as children of the one true God with an inheritance that we're heading for, and that all of his provisions come revealed to us in the word, provided through his son, applied through his spirit. And it all sounds so great. We say, well, I like that. I live that way. It makes my life easier. And then we turn around and we go out into life and we live as if it's for our own glory. Isaiah wants to expose that in all of us today and point us to the solution. And my trust is that the Holy Spirit is already working on you to show you ways that you know you're already self-sufficient And maybe ways that you don't even realize it. And he's opening up and he will continue to open up through his word, sharper than a two-edged sword, all those ways that you and I are tending to be self-sufficient and therefore arrogantly take our God's glory and assign it to us. You say, well, Pastor Rob, that's an awful harsh beginning after starting with babies. The reason we started with babies is they show this to us. So does the word. So does God speaking to you in your own heart. And the job of a believer is to submit to the work of the Lord through the word of the Lord and the power of the spirit of the Lord to conform us into the image of Christ who is by definition dependent upon his father, sufficient to do only what his father had sent him to do, which was everything. God himself incarnate and yet submitted to his father for his glory. Turn to Isaiah chapter 22. Stand with me as I read. I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. If you've done any study in this, you know that there are two major sections that are in front of us. And Isaiah has used this um, rhetorical technique over and over to have different sections in one oracle. Sometimes he has talked current. Sometimes he's prophesied about the future. Sometimes he's done current and future and, and near future and far future all in one oracle. So we're used to this by now. So by the ninth of the ten oracles to the nations, we still have some more oracles to go, but these are the ten to the nations around Judah and the warning to Judah not to trust in those nations because God is sovereign over all of them. And when they disobey, he will hold them liable for their disobedience. But he will also be redeeming people from every nation in the providence of his divine plan for history. So we change a little bit here in the ninth oracle because now in the ninth oracle, the ninth oracle is directed to God's people directly. Isaiah 22, the oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you have gone up? All of you to the housetops, you who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore, I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of, my da- of the daughter of my people. For Yahweh, or for Lord, God of hosts, has a day. 
a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing of oxen and slaughtering of sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Yahweh of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity, iniquity will not be atoned for until you die says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, what have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut here, cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rocks. Behold, Yahweh will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. And there you shall die. And there shall be your glorious chariots. You shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from the office and you will be pulled down from your station. And in that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hands. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of, da of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and, shall, and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, and every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off. For Yahweh has spoken. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So in this chapter, Yahweh reveals and responds to two examples of self-sufficient pride. Yahweh reveals and responds to two examples of self-sufficient pride. And the first example that we see in the first major section, the first 14 verses, we see Jerusalem called the Valley of Vision. Now remember, in these oracles, when we get to the second set, oracles 6 through 10, 
several of those oracles have these titles that obscure the name of the country. It's not just an oracle concerning Philistia or Egypt or Cush, but there are names that we saw like last week when we saw the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. And here we have the oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. And when we start this, we'd have no idea who the Valley of Vision refers to. We, we're not sure. Valley of Vision, this phrase only occurs here in Scripture, in verse 1 and verse 5. In Jeremiah uh, chapter 21, 13, Judah is called the Valley, but as far as Valley of Vision, this is, this is it right here. So we're left to think, I wonder who this is, and the context has to tell us. So as we look at the context, which I just read through that section, you saw that it was Jerusalem itself. So let, let's just show us the little ways that we know this is true. When we see Isaiah's lament in verse 4, he says that he's lamenting and don't comfort him over the destruction of the daughter of my people. So the daughter of Isaiah's people is going to be God's people in Jerusalem. We also see in verses, the second half of verse 8 through verse 11, verse 11, that we're, that we're talking about the history of Jerusalem and Hezekiah, the king. There is a specific point in history that we're talking about with that. So we are talking about Jerusalem, and that should jar us right off the bat, shouldn't it? Because we move from all the other nations, what God intends to do with their disobedience, warning the people of God not to trust in them, and now we come to the people of God with a direct and strong warning. So right off the bat, you and I, we're not Israelites in Jerusalem, but we're God's children living in this world, heading toward the new heaven and new earth, and God deals with us, and we can be prone to the same sins. We can be prone to the same look at God as God looks at those sins. Now hear me say, if you are in Christ this morning, you are safe. God may discipline you, but your salvation will not be taken away. The new heavens and new earth are not going to be yanked away from you because you sinned 462 times instead of 461 today. But God still disciplines his people, amen? And it's a loving discipline. And if he doesn't, it, we're illegitimate children. If, if he doesn't discipline us, so we should be worried if he doesn't discipline us, but he will always discipline his children and bring them back into the way, the pathway of life, because in him are the truths about the path of our life. So our ears are perked up here of how this directly affects. Every scripture has application for us, but here, if he's speaking to the people of God, he's speaking to us. And so we need to hear that. So Jerusalem is example one, the Valley of Vision. And we're going to see um, seven different ways that their self-sufficient pride is revealed and dealt with. First, their self-sufficient pride is on display. Look at verse one. What do you mean that you have gone up? This phrase, what do you mean? That's a, that's a challenge. What are you doing? It's a challenge that you're doing something that needs an explanation. Why are you doing whatever's going to follow? It's a, it's a strong phrase. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops, you who are full of shouting, tumultuous city, exultant town? Why are you celebrating? Because what he's about to say is judgment is coming. So why on earth are you celebrating? Why, why do I look, Isaiah says, in this vision and find you celebrating? He's going to tell us later on in the chapter what they should be doing, but right now it's just a challenge that they're celebrating and their ears should be listening. Oh, you mean we shouldn't be? We shouldn't be celebrating? And that's what we hear right at the beginning. So the self-sufficient pride is on display because the prophet of God is challenging their current actions. 
But secondly, the self-sufficient pride leads to destruction. Look at the second half of verse 2. Your slain are not slain by the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together without the bow they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Now there's debate on most of these oracles on if there's a specific time frame in Isaiah's mind. And there are some folks that would put this specific time frame around 701 uh, in a specific battle that we're going to find out about in chapters 36 and 37, a specific situation. But I think in the beginning of this, we are looking forward to 586 B.C. What happens in 586 B.C.? The southern kingdom taken into captivity by Babylon, right? 722, the northern kingdom. That's the time Isaiah was starting in that, in that last part of the 8th century. And here I think what's in view is the end of Judah, the end of Jerusalem. Turn, keep your finger here and turn to 2 Kings 25. 2 Kings chapter 25. Now, we could start, I'm not going to take the time to do this. We could start in chapter 24 and see Jerusalem being captured. And when Jerusalem is captured and the last king of Judah, the last king that's, that's, uh, that's out of the right lines, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim is his father, ending in an M, Jehoiakim ends in an N. Um, my my Old Testament seminary professor said Jehoiakim took it on the chin because Jehoiakim, his father, led this, the, the uh, city into destruction. So the last king, Jehoiakim, he is disposed of, and Zedekiah is a puppet king put in place by Babylon. So that's what happens in the end of chapter 24. Now look at chapter 25. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon in Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And it goes on to tell this story that ends in verse 21. Look with me at the last verse in that section, verse 21. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. Now, keep your finger in Isaiah, but turn over to Lamentations. Lamentations, that little book that falls in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Lamentations 4. Lamentations is a lament over the fall of Jerusalem. And I want you to just look at two verses that are applicable for us. beginning of verse 9 of chapter 4. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of fruits of the field. 
The hands of the compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. I think what Isaiah is referring to, what God is referring to in this vision that Isaiah brings is the final destruction of Jerusalem. The language is the same. Look back, in, if you will, in the, in the section in Isaiah 22 in verses um, 2 and 3 where we just were. Your slain are not slain by the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you were found... All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. It would have been better for them, according to Lamentations, it would have been better for them to be killed by the sword rather than to be so starved that they had to eat their own children. And so this language of you fled and they still caught you, and then what Isaiah is about to say of his weeping over the daughter of his people and what God is doing, I think he's got in mind here at this first section the final destruction. Then he's going to come back to the current time under Hezekiah and say these are the things going on now that are going to end up leading to that. And then he's going to give us the picture of the household of David and what the ruling um, kingship is, is doing and how the individuals who represent the country will be the same self-sufficient approach to life. That's, the le- that's where we're headed in the last half of the chapter. So self-sufficient pride on display, self-sufficient pride leads to destruction. Third, self-sufficient pride is mourned. And this is where Isaiah speaks in verse 4. Therefore, I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. Isaiah sees this destruction. And remember, he's seeing these in a vision. And he sees his people being destroyed. And he knows why they're going to be destroyed. He's going to tell us that. And he is weeping over their sin and the destruction that follows. And he wants to be left alone. He doesn't want the spotlight shined on him as he sees this. And this is an insight into our own heart. This is an insight into our own heart as we look at the world and God judges people in the world. As we look at people in the church who are pursuing sin without repentance This is an insight into how we weep and mourn over them because we are concerned, especially when it happens in the family of God. And this is what Isaiah is dealing with. It's his own people, and he knows what they should be doing. But instead of what they should be doing, they're partying. Instead of what they should be doing and trusting God, they're trusting in themselves, and he weeps and he mourns over this. I wonder, when's the last time you mourned over someone who is a professing believer who just pursued sin And God is moving in their lives against them, and they continue to do that. Our response is to mourn over them. And this is really something you have to take into effect when it's against you. When someone's sinning against you, and they won't stop doing it, you have to mourn over them. Not just be angry about it, but mourn over them. This is what Isaiah demonstrates for us. And it's right here in our text today for us. Self-sufficient pride is on display. Self-sufficient pride leads to destruction. Self-sufficient pride mourned. Self-sufficient pride, fourth, is judged. Look at chapter, look at verse five. For, and then this wonderful, powerful name, Adonai Yahweh Sabaoth, for the Lord God of hosts has a day. And we should see this, a day, the same as we see Um, the the other markers that we see in this text and we've seen in other places in that day. Remember that has marked out so many different sections for us. It's marking out this as well. For the Lord God of hosts, this powerful God of the armies has a day, a day of tumult and trampling and confusion. Now those, those words are reminding us of covenant curses from Deuteronomy chapter 28. 
Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 20 talks about if, the, if his people, if God's people are disobedient, there will be covenant curses that he will be bound to bring upon them. And they are like this. They are confusion. They are tumult. They are trampling upon by other nations. So this is a reminder that God is faithful to his covenant. And if the nation is going to be disobedient, he has told them in multiple places, nonetheless, to Deuteronomy 28, that this is what will happen. In, and he says in verse, 25, in verse 5, in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. This confusion is going to lead to confusing activities and shouting to the mountaintops, to the sky, that there is trouble in the camp. There's problems that are going on and they're going to be confused by all of this. And who has caused that? The Lord God of hosts who has a day. God is behind what he's doing. He intends for his people to be brought to repentance, and this is the way he's moving. Verse 6, And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shields. So, so Elam is east of Babylon. It would have been partnered with Babylon at this time. We don't know about Kir for sure where that is, but these are armies who are ready for battle. They're full of chariots. The horsemen take their stand at the gates of the city. Um, the, and look at verse 8 as, as Isaiah sums it up. He has taken away the covering of Judah, the security of Judah. God has taken away the security, the earthly security, and his own protection of Judah because they are having a party and rejoicing instead of mourning and repenting. So this self-sufficient pride is judged by God. It's on display. It leads to destruction. Isaiah mourns over it and God judges it. Fifth, self-sufficient pride is dissected. Now we're going to get to see why God is doing this. God doesn't just say you're guilty. He shows them why they're guilty. Look at the second half of verse 8. In that day, I want you to know, I tried to emphasize this when I, read, when I read this, but look at all the places that Isaiah says you, that they looked and saw and did and made. and Look at, look at all these times. You looked, you saw, you collected, you counted, you broke down, you made. So he, he tells them, Yahweh tells them through his prophet, in that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. You can read about the house of the forest in 1 Kings chapter 7 and chapter 10 where Solomon builds this as part of the building project of building the temple and it's where they would put all of the all of the riches and all of the gold not the silver it says silver wasn't valuable in Solomon's time but it also would be the place for the shield and it would be the place at this time that was the armory that's where they kept all the weapons of war. And so in their, they're, they're looking around at this particular time and they're seeing the need to do something to, to fortify the city. And so the first thing they do is they look to the weapons in the house of the forest. First thing they look is the power of their armies and the way their armies are outfitted in order to protect their city. The next it says, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. So the breaches in the wall, the places that enemies could attack. You collected the waters of the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. So we'll come back to the first part. But the second part is they took an inventory of all the houses in the city and said, which ones can we tear down to fortify the wall? Use the stone of those houses and put it in a wall to fortify that. What good does it, have, does it do anybody to have safe houses if the enemy can just walk in in the breaches in the wall? So they're doing what they think are wise things by assessing their situation and fixing the problem. 
But in verse 9, it says, you collected the waters of the lower pool. And in verse 11, it says, you made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. So this is referring, I think, to a very specific time, which we'll learn much more about when we get to chapters 36 and 37. Remember that in Isaiah, this first portion of Isaiah, we begin by looking at a wicked king. Who is, who is the king that was wicked at the beginning? Ahaz, we're going to move toward a king that was much more faithful but not perfect in Hezekiah, his son. So that is going to give us the bookends, the inclusio, if you will, of verses of chapters 1 through 39. One of the things Hezekiah did was he built an underground tunnel for the water to come from the Gihon Spring and bring that into the temple. Because in Jerusalem in that day, the water supply came from that spring into the temple by a viaduct that was above ground. Now, in that time, if your water supply is above ground, how safe are you from attackers? Not very, right? It's easy to lay a siege against that city. Just destroy the water supply. So Hezekiah thinks, I'm going to do something different. And so he builds this underground and connects it with the tunnel. The distance between the spring and the lower pool was about 1,100 feet. And it was a longer tunnel than that because it zigged and zagged at times to to avoid weak spots and to, to go by fissures that were already in the ground that they didn't have to dig. And they started digging from the spring side and the temple side and they met in the middle and they built this underground engineering marvel to get their water to come into the temple and them to be safer. So Hezekiah is doing all of these things that in one sense could be the right thing to do, correct? If there's breaches in the wall, then go fix the breaches in the wall. If they can destroy you, if they can put you under siege by destroying your water supply, then fix that if you can do it a different way. So they're doing all kinds of things that could be right, just like you and I do. If we need to prepare for, prepare for our retirement, we prepare for our retirement. We put money away. If we, need, if we need a bigger house for our children, we try to buy a bigger house for our family. If we need another car because we have to go too many places at once, we might buy another car. There's all kinds of ways. If we, if we think that we, we want to move up in our job and we strengthen our credentials, we get different certifications or, or different experience, and we climb the ladder in our job so we have more authority. And all of that could be doing your best. All of that could be bringing glory to God in all things. Whatever you do, do to the glory of God, whether you eat or you drink, all of that can be good. And all of that can be sinful. And Hezekiah's work at his time could be good or it could be sinful. But I want you to look back at your text in verse 11. You saw, you collected, you counted, you broke down, you made... But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago, who formed it, who created it as a potter. That's what that word planned means. So the it, what does the it refer to? But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Is it their current situation? Is it their current situation that they're seeing weakness and they're, they're trying to do good things with that? And, and it's their, the situation that God is in control of all that today, tomorrow, yesterday? Or is it even more closely related to God's hand on his people? Because see, it was Jerusalem that God picked for himself. It is Jerusalem where God picked and said that this is where I will meet with you. This is the temple. This is where I will meet with you. It is Jerusalem that God said, this is where this will, this, th that my place will be with you. One commentator 
I like Motier, who just, he has a, I don't agree with everything he says, but he has a fascinating commentary that makes you think about the text. And he writes this, talking about the it, what does it refer to? This refers to the situation in which Jerusalem then found itself. The circumstances of the Lord's people are not chance, but design. And their resource is not to change their circumstances, which would be challenging his will, he writes, or question them, which would be doubting his will, but to throw themselves in faith upon the doer, the potter himself. Secondly, and more particularly, it is Jerusalem itself, the city chosen by the Lord to make his name dwell there. And you can find this in Deuteronomy 12.5 and 1 Kings 8.29. When he chose it, he knew all about the vulnerable water supply. It was no accident or oversight. The potter made it so on his wheel. He did not leave his city short of water. Hezekiah did not improve the supply. He only redirected it. But the Lord arranged the supply in such a way that living in Jerusalem was a perpetual exercise of faith. A perpetual perpetual challenge to find security in the Lord and Hezekiah's tunnel contradicted the way of faith. So was God in charge of their water supply? And could God have been in charge of their water supply? Could they have looked to him who did it and planned it and sought his wisdom and still built that tunnel? Absolutely they could have done that. They could have done the right thing in the right way. They could have trusted in God, and God gave them a collective unity that this is what should be done, and they gave them, he gave them the resources to do it, the intellect to do such a marvel engineering feat. But Isaiah says, no, God, who knows the hearts of men, knows that you did not see him. You saw everything out of your own flesh, everything out of your own eyes, but you didn't see them through eyes of faith. You did not see them through eyes that God was in charge of this and take him and his will into account. How many times do you and I do that? How many times do you and I make decisions that we think are mundane decisions and we make them with no concern for him who did it and planned it and formed it? We do it with no concern of him who controls everything, who is sovereign over everything, and who is looking for people who worship him in spirit and in truth, which is not just here on Sunday morning, but living a life that we're dependent upon that, and yet we do things, and then we get done, and we realize, I never, I never asked the Lord anything. I never sought spiritual counsel from other believers. I never even checked the word to see if there was something that was against me, bringing, building that, that house of prostitution to make my living. I didn't even think of that. I didn't check wise counsel. I didn't ask God. I didn't pray. The God who knows everything from beginning to end, the number of hairs on my head and what will happen in the next second, the next minute, the next hour, the next day, and if the Lord tarries a thousand years from now, I did not even bow to him and ask him what he would have me do. And he tells me in his word, if I lack wisdom, I pray to him and he grants me wisdom. And I did not even do that. What is your situation? What's maybe the longest time this last week that you made decisions without considering what the Lord would do? What the Lord would have you do? I know you probably always do that. I have times in my life where I don't do that. Do you? Where you make decisions and make actions and they could be wise decisions. God has given you the ability to make the decision. He's given you the ability to accomplish that task. But when you do it without giving him credit, then you are doing it for your own glory. He's the one who's equipped you to be able to do that. We had a discussion in our Sunday school class this morning about retirement. 
It's not a wrong thing to put money away for retirement. It just depends on where your heart is when you're retiring. Are you trying to retire, make, make your million by the year 40 so you can sit on your, we have a back porch, sit, so that we can sit on my back porch and watch the leaves grow, travel all over the world and do what we want to do? Or are we trying to retire at 40 so we can use all that wealth that we can build churches in places that need churches and plant churches there and train leaders and send them there? Maybe that you would be free to go maybe to France when Keith and Carmen need to come back here for, I think, a full year. Would God use you to go over there and help in their ministry for three or six months or whatever it would be? Why are you retiring? Your motives are important to God. He cares because he has a plan for you. So all kinds of ways. I could belabor this. The spirit of God's already talking to you about those places that you are doing everything out of your own power and not asking God. And it's all around us. You're tempted at every turn to do this in your families, raising your children, making career decisions, all kinds of things. Isaiah is telling the people, you did all this stuff but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Well, not only is their pride dissect, their self-sufficient pride dissected, their self-sufficient pride refuses to repent. Look at verse 12. In that day, probably meaning the same in that day as middle of verse 8, talking about Hezekiah's day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning for boldness and wearing sackcloth. So what is he calling for? He's calling for repentance. Humble, lamenting repentance. He's not saying, I'm judging you without any chance to repent. He said, I'm calling you to repent, but what are you doing? You're throwing a party on the rooftop. Look at verse 12 or 13. And behold, or some of your versions might say, instead... Joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So instead of repenting, we're still partying. We're, we're preparing meals. We're eating. We're drinking. We're acting like there's no judgment on the horizon. We're acting like there's no reason for us to repent, even though our God is calling us to repentance. This is why Isaiah reaps, weeps. Because he's seeing the call to repentance, but they're still partying. They're still partying on the rooftop. They're oblivious to what's going on. They're living as if, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There is nothing else more important than satisfying my desires today at this time. And if I die tomorrow, I'm happy today. Paul picks up this verse, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians 15, he, he says that if there is no resurrection, then this is the way we're living. I mean, this is the way we live. If there is no resurrection, we might as well just live and satisfy ourselves today because if tomorrow we die, that's the end. But Paul's saying, no, there is a resurrection. So he uses the same verse to, to have the same spiritual effect in the New Testament. So the self-sufficient pride refuses to repent, but also, and finally, in this first section, self-sufficient pride leads to spiritual death. Look at verse 14. Yahweh of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. That's literally uncovered himself in my ears. So God has uncovered, their, uncovered Jerusalem, removed the security from them, but he's also uncovering his will in Isaiah's ears. What a picturesque way to, to talk about this. And, he, and the Lord says to Isaiah in his ears, surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. So this is telling us if you're going to live 
in such a way that today is the only thing that matters and tomorrow you could die and then nothing matters, I'm going to tell you your sin is never going to be forgiven. It doesn't mean that when you die, your sin will be forgiven. It means that you, you will, you, this sin is unforgivable. And what is this unforgivable sin in Isaiah 22? It's refusing to repent and put your faith and trust in the Lord, in his provision for you. And if you continue to live that way, it will lead to your destruction and it will not be forgiven you. And yes, living today as if dying tomorrow is the only thing that matters, that's all that's going to matter, so you think. But we know that there is something after we die in this life. And if our sin is not forgiven, then the next life is full of travail. The next life is full of punishment, is full of unspeakable punishment because we've decided to live as if we are self-sufficient with our sin that we can forgive our own sin, that whatever we do is the only thing that matters. And God says, no, I have offered you salvation and you are pushing it away. Amen. So the first example is Jerusalem, the Valley of Vision. But he also gives a second example, the house of David. And here we see two people who are leaders in the house of David, talking about the steward, talking about the, the right-hand man of the king talking about the person who would have all authority in the house. Um, you know, some people say it's like the chief of staff for a presidential office, that that chief of staff is the right-hand man to the president, controls everything else. This is a high-ranking official, and look what it says in verse 15. The first um, leader of the house of David that we see, the house of David is led by Shebna, who is self-sufficient, his self-sufficient pride is revealed. Look at verse 15. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Come, go to this steward. And that's kind of a snarl there in the way it says. It's it, go to this steward, this uppity steward. And we'll see that develop as he goes through to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him. So here is a steward. Here is the right hand of the king. This is, this is about as much power as you can get in the human realm. And notice it's just Shebna. It's not son of, it's just Shebna. And in the scriptures, when you're introduced in that way, you're introduced, it's this person, and here's his daddy, and here's his daddy, and here's his daddy. It's brought as a, as a line of succession for the character of that person. In this, we just have Shebna, no line of succession. So there are some people that think Shebna, and, I, and I'm halfway to this, he is either not of the right lineage to be in this position, or he's a foreigner. And he's probably a foreigner. He's probably an Egyptian who has somehow worked his way up into this position. And now God is going to reveal him as being self-sufficient in his pride. Look at verse 16. And look at the, the, the description of the here's in verse 16 and the there's in verse 17 and 18. What have you to do here and whom have you here? So what are you doing here in this place and I think specifically in the place where they're, they're, he's having a, a, a tomb dug out for himself and his lineage. What are you doing here? And who have, whom have you here? What, what is your right to be here? What is your lineage? What, what, what right do you have to be, to be uh, as we see, digging out a, a, a tomb for yourself in this place? What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here in this specific place a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the high on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. 
What are you doing here? It, the fact that you are here doing this means, according to I, the Lord through Isaiah, is that you are using a prideful expression of your own self-sufficiency. You are using your office to gain things that are above your station that you have no right to do. And God is calling it out, not because he's doing it, but because that's the fruit of an arrogant heart that is self-sufficient and doing what he wants to do. Look at verse 17. You're here, here, here. Behold, Yahweh will hurl you away violently, O oh, you strong man, you who are using your position in the wrong way. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into the, into the wide land. So from here to there, what a vivid description. The Lord is going to pick you up and roll you into ball, ball and throw you out of this place that you have usurped yourself to be in. And there you shall die. And there shall be your glorious chariots and shame, you shame of your master's house. You should be reflecting the honor of your master, but you are living in such a way that brings shame to him. And maybe the reference to chariots is even that he sets up and rides in chariots because he has the right to set them up. It's like the chauffeur calling for the car himself, right? Because he drives that car, so he, he might as well ride in that car or something. He is abusing his authority from an arrogant self-sufficiency, and the Lord is having none of it. He will send him out of that place, and he says he will die. And you are the shame of your master's house. And this is something that happens. When we pursue our own glory, it ends up bad for us. Because we should be pursuing the, the, the glory of our master. Nothing else. We should be pursuing the glory of God. And he will use us in marvelous and miraculous ways and we turn and give him the glory. And when we don't, we're taking it on ourselves. And that is subtle for us that all of a sudden, everything we do, we get feel pretty good about ourselves. The things that we can accomplish and the things that we can do. It's perfect timing to use the example of your 401ks that if some of you have your trust in that, where's your trust now if you are in the wrong investments? If you were in the wrong cryptocurrency last week, where's your trust now? See, how we respond to that reveals what our heart is in putting that stuff away. Are we after our glory or his glory? Shebna was after his own glory, but he ended up being a shame to his master's house. So his self-sufficient pride is revealed. His self-sufficient pride is judged. But God will move. So we have the house of David as led by Shebna and the house of David as led by Eliakim. Look in verse 20. Verse 19, I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. This is God saying you will not have your office, your station that you have thought was high and mighty that you use for your own, purpose, your own purposes. I will pull you down. And verse 20, in that day, in the same day I pull you down, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. So Eliakim means God established. Hilkiah means Yahweh is my portion. So you're seeing, what are we seeing about these people as far as their namesakes go? They're devoted. They're devoted to God. Not to themselves, but to God. So Yahweh will establish Eliakim. Verse 21, I will clothe him with your robe, speaking to Shebna, but all the things that Shebna has is, are now Eliakim's. I will clothe him with your robe, 
So there's probably governmental authority in there, the authority of the house. And I will bind your sash on him, the same thing, and I will commit your authority to his hand. All the authority that you had is the right hand of the king will now be his. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Why is that? Because the king should be following Yahweh, and so will his right-hand man. And that will be good for the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. And verse 22, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. So maybe this is the literal key to the house. It probably has that, but it's definitely a term to talk about the authority that he has. If he gives the authority for someone to do something in the house, it says that the king is giving authority. This is the same way the king should be acting with his submission to Yahweh. When the king gives authority, it's giving Yahweh's authority because he's following the king. This is the same thing that Eliakim will do, and it will be different than Shebna. Verse 23, and I will fasten him like a peg. We use a metaphor here, Isaiah does. I will fasten him like a peg. Actually, God is saying this, Yahweh through Isaiah. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of the father's house, his father's house. The offspring and issue, in other words, his children and their children's children, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons, all of the honor will be resting on your shoulder because you have the keys to the house of David. You have the responsibility to steward the house. And so everything rests upon you. And God establishes him. You see the, this picture of a peg firmly driven into a wall that is capable of all of this hanging upon it. Just think of the, the pegs that are, that are in your house where you come in and you bring your winter coats. And especially if you have kids and how many of those coats and layers you put on those and it hangs. It holds up to what you need it to do. Yahweh has established this peg. And it will be a good thing because these are people who God established and Yahweh is their portion. Their names reflect their commitment. But then we have verse 25. Not only will Yahweh establish Eliakim, Yahweh will cut him off. In that day, that's a future day because we just know what the, the day is in verse 20. This is where everything God is establishing strong. In that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place. So it's not the securer of the peg that's a problem here, is it? It was fastened in a secure place. Will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off. Why? For Yahweh has spoken. So something is going to change, either in Eliakim, that he wasn't able to handle all of that, receiving all the glory that he should give to the king who should give it to God. Either he will not be handling it and he will fall, God will, God will tear him down, or the nation becomes so addicted to Eliakim and his blessings because of the blessings that God gives that the nation puts their faith and trust in a man instead of God. One of those things is going to happen, but even the good leader is going to lead to a self-sufficiency in one of those areas and God will not have that because when we take the glory of God instead of giving it to him he shares his glory with no one and so even Eliakim needs that and if you're like me you get to the end of this and you're like man I I have no idea here this is this is like one of those things that there's just no hope I mean this is the people of God 
and the nation is self-sufficient, and the first ruler is self, uh, the, uh, the, the right hand of the king is self-sufficient, and even the good guy secured, he gets self-sufficient or causes the nation to be self-sufficient, and God says he's going to bring judgment on all of them. What are we to do? Do you ever feel that way? Well, I can tell you there is a secure peg, and that peg is one who can handle all the honor of his father's house. That peg is one that God has securely fastened in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He was sent to to this earth to be a a man. He is the incarnate God-man. So he would identify with his people, born in a manger and humble beginnings, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross as the Old Testament said he would. And all in the process, he is, his peg is being secured because he lives a righteous life. He does not sin. He obeys the law. He is the seed that will crush the serpent's head. He is the king that's always been searched for, the prophet that's always been waited on, the priest who has been waited on. He comes in the order of Melchizedek. He comes to give life to his people. And he comes not only to die, but to be raised again. Because we are not the people who live as if we eat and we drink and then we die. We are the people people who live giving glory to God. And when we die, we live and we live forever because of the work of Christ, the peg that has been established firmly. And there will be no failure on his part because he is bearing the honor of his father. He is doing everything that the father says. And he is now seated at the right hand of the father. And that offer is to all of us to repent and to trust in him. And if same offer is to us, and if we refuse to repent and we live our lives unrepentant before him, then it's us saying to God, I don't need you. I can deal with my own sin on that day. I think my life will be more righteous than unrighteous. I think it'll be okay to stand before you, a righteous and holy God. That self-sufficiency will not acquire the new heaven and new earth. It will not require acquire eternal life with Christ. The only way to do that is to place your faith and trust in the peg that's firmly established in Christ himself. Because in, in Revelation, to, in the letter to Philadelphia, Jesus himself said, I am the key of David. I I am the one who opens and no one shuts. I am the one who shuts and no one opens. The way to the Father is through the Son, period. End of discussion. And you cannot come to the Father through the Son unless you are completely reliant upon something other than yourself. It cannot be yourself. You cannot be self-reliant with your own sin. You have to be reliant on the one who came and lived and died so that you and I would have life. Because he is the peg that can handle all the weight and the glory of the Father's house. And you and I, repenting of our sin and trusting in him, we gain life. Because he took the death, he took the wrath of God so that we would not and we would live eternally. So there is always hope. There is always hope and it's in Christ himself. It's not in our own glory. And the beauty is that even as believers, when we're tempted to do this, we don't lose our salvation because this peg is never going to be knocked off. This peg will never be crushed under the weight because all that the father gives to the son will come to him. He will not lose any. So the peg will never be snapped. And so we never lose the salvation that we gain, but the Lord lovingly disciplines us so we stop taking our own glory and we begin to give it to him and he exalts us at the proper time. So this morning, the the sadness of chapter 22 is yours if you refuse to repent and still throw the party on the rooftops. 
But if you are willing to not be self-sufficient for your own salvation and know that no one can provide salvation except the God of the universe who sent his son that you might have life, then today the life becomes yours and your sin will be atoned for before you die. And heaven, the new heaven and new earth is yours to worship with no sin, death, dying, pain, crying, struggle forever. So the good news is the peg. Where do you stand? Father, we are grateful for your love for us, your care for us, your concern for us. We are grateful, Lord, that you sent your son that we might have life. You've sent your son to accomplish your will. You sent your son that we might be a people who are in fellowship with you. He came to identify with us and die and take our place. And we are so grateful, Father, that now we have life eternal. So teach us and help us, Father, that it is so futile for us to live our life taking your glory. Live our life making decisions as if you don't have a plan, you don't have a purpose, that you haven't predetermined what should happen in our life for our good and your glory. Help us, Lord, to crucify that sin and to do everything to your glory, whether we eat or we drink. So it is our prayer, Father, that you would strengthen us in this task. We know that you pursue us in discipline when we decide to go off on our own. And we pray, Father, that, that all of those who are yours would see that sooner than later, that repentance that you, you have equipped us for and granted to us, that we would be quick repenters, Father, for we know that we are not perfect, but your Son is. So we ask you, Lord, to work your will and your way in our life and work that in such a way that you gain all the glory. And for that, we'll praise you in Jesus' name.